All right, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Hey, question for you. What is an elder? Why do we have them? Who should become them? Elders, we'll be talking about elders the next several weeks in God's Word. And hey, many people in our church don't even know our elders. So I want you to meet one of our elders right now. We're going to share Ken Henley, the chairman of our elders. We're going to share his testimony video with you right now. I like to say that I was raised in a Christian household, but uh, my mom and dad didn't come to know the Lord until I was about 12 years old. After my dad was led to the to the Lord by a man at work, he uh, started attending a Memorial Baptist Church in Oakland, and uh, uh, I saw so many people walk the aisle and get saved. And, and one day, uh, I, I guess my heart was was convicted, and I. Uh, walked the aisle to, to receive Christ uh, at 12 years old. Shortly thereafter, uh, my mom and dad uh, migrated us to a different church, and there uh, I got really involved. By the time I, I became a, a junior in high school, uh, I was doing everything at church, and uh, I, I was really just playing a game is what I, what I discovered. And one day, a uh, we had a special speaker at our high school club come in, and I, I couldn't even tell you who it, who it was, but uh, he, he challenged us, and uh, he was specifically talking to the church kids. And he goes, you guys out there, you're, you're, a lot of you, you're just playing a game. And I felt like, he, like his eyes were burning through me. On the outside, I was saying all the right things that a church kid should say. I was doing all the things that a church kid, kid should do, but inside, I didn't have a relationship with Christ. And he gave us this challenge, and, and this really struck me. He said, if you're, if you're truly a disciple of Christ, you should not be afraid to pray this prayer. Father, do whatever's necessary in my life to make me closer to you. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. And um, I said, okay, if I'm really this Christian that I, that I profess to be, why, why can't I say this? And I remember just uh, getting down with God and saying, Father, I surrender my life to you. And I don't know if I got saved when I was 12 or, if, or, or I got saved right then, but that was the point when I surrendered my life to Christ. And I can look back now and say that that's when the Lord started to go to work on me. So the Lord has taken me on quite a journey uh, since then, working in me and purifying me. Um, and uh, it's been a long road. But um, and just in the past few years, I'm excited about what God is doing in my life. Um, I, I believe that he specifically led me to Harvest Palos. We were just praying, Lord, use us in a greater way. What have you got prepared for us? And we prayed and prayed. And in fact, he didn't answer our prayer right away. It took two years of praying for him to answer us. And uh, when we heard about Harvest Palos, we went to the, uh, the initial launch team meetings. And my wife, Debbie, and I got involved in the launch team. And... Uh, Wow, we've seen God do some amazing things in the last year and a half, I, I, beyond what I could possibly imagine. And uh, just the opportunity to, to, uh, to become an elder and use my gifts in that way has been an exciting thing to see. Uh, God has really humbled me in that way to, uh, to, be able, to be able to serve in that capacity. And now I'm just looking forward to uh, seeing God continue what he's already started at Harvest Palos.
videos from three years ago when we first installed our elders. And uh, I said it from the beginning, but when it comes to getting elders, we hit the jackpot. I mean, we won the lottery. And um, I love Ken Henley and his service to the Lord. We're, he's in this service right now. Where are you at, Ken? Ken Henley's right here. Ken and Debbie. Yeah. Ken, will you please stand up so we can honor you? And Debbie, too. Come on. We love you guys. You serve so faithfully. Thank you so much. Don't worry, your video will be shown in a few weeks, Mr. Kioski. <laughs> we are um, so grateful that we have godly elders. Um, why do we have elders, though? Uh, why does any church have elders? How should the church be led? Where did this elder thing come from? We're going to talk for the next six weeks that I'm preaching about elders and deacons, how the church should be led. But it's really a design for discipleship of all men. All right, so listen. It's not like, oh, good, I'm not an elder. I can just take a nap right now. No, this is actually what God wants to turn every man into. And women, there are spiritual principles that are for you too. So get your pen, get your bulletin, get your Bible, and we're going to talk about leadership for several weeks. But first, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you loved your church so much that you sent your son to die for her, your bride, And we know that you want your church to be in good hands, to be uh, looked after and cared for and taught and matured and built up. And so we ask that you would bless the leadership of this church. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would teach us from your word about your will and your plan for leadership. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, your Bible should be open to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, where it says this. The saying is trustworthy. Okay, pause. The saying is trustworthy. What does that mean? Well, he's leading into something that became somewhat creedal, like a saying of the early church. So there are many sayings that we use today, right? Like, don't put the cart before the horse, or, you know, don't count your chickens before they're hatched. Like, this is like a saying, but it's more like a religious saying that was in the Christian community all around. So, for example, uh, if I were to say, um, God is good... And all the time, thank you 1990 for bringing us that Christian saying, all right, that is very outdated as of this point. That's kind of what he's saying here. This saying is trustworthy, and they may have all known this. It says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. That's the saying. If anyone desires, aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Why would this become a saying? Well, it, it might be a saying somewhat like, you know, um, be careful what you wish for. Like, if this is what you want, it's a noble thing you're after. He's elevating the office of elder in the local church by quoting this saying. Um, here's the first thing you can write down about elder leadership. Write this down. Esteem the office highly. Esteem the office highly. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. He's trying to elevate the office of elder in the hearts of everyone in the congregation. Why? Well, if you were here for the past several weeks, you know that in Ephesus, which is the church this was written to, there was a power struggle among the men. Church fight. All right. Thankfully, in our day and age, there's never any power struggles in the church anymore. So nobody said amen. You're right. There are power struggles in the church, and there was a power struggle in this church. The men were fighting, and then there was an uprising among some of the women. And then even outside the church, there were some people challenging the formal leadership. 
So when he says this is a noble task, he's elevating it in the eyes of all. Why? To prevent the congregation from dismissing the elders, which some of them wanted to do. Elder Schmelder, I've got my small group leader telling me what to believe. Uh, the elders serve a noble task. There's also, he wanted to prevent self-seeking men from cheapening the office of elder. You know, I think I've got a lot to offer. I want them to make me an elder. You know, I've only been here for a week, but make me... Well, you're cheapening it. It's a noble task. He also wanted to prevent those who were elders from neglecting it. He's trying to get the congregation to not dismiss elders, self-seeking men to not cheapen the, eldering, the elder role, and current elders to not neglect what they're supposed to do. Everyone see this is a high calling. He's elevating it. So we have to esteem it highly. What exactly is an elder? In fact, Pastor Ryan, it doesn't even say elder here. It says aspires to the office of overseer. Okay, listen. There are three words used in the New Testament to describe the same office. Pastor, elder, overseer. Okay, here the word overseer is used. Where does that come from? Overseer is a Greek word, uh, episkopos. What does that sound like? Episkopos? Yeah. So we borrowed that word from the Greek to get an English word, episcopal. Episkopos was a Greek word. It was used um, for a government leader who looked over, over uh, oversaw a Roman colony. Okay, so mayor, governor, kind of mayor, you know. City, uh, it was like a city official, and they borrowed that word, overseer, brought it into the church for the church leader. Okay. Um, another word used is elder. Where does that word come from? Elder comes from the, the um, Jewish word presbuteros. What does that sound like? Presbyter, right. So we borrowed again that Jewish word um, from the early church, and it, it means elder. Now, every synagogue had elders. So when the church was formed, they took that same concept of having elders, and they brought it right into the church. We're going to have elders in the church just like we've had them in the synagogue for our whole lives. So um, there's, a, there's a Jewish word drawn from their community, uh, Hebrew, from Hebrew. There's also a Greek word drawn from the Greek community, overseer. And then the word pastor, another Hebrew word, is uh, poimino. Poimino is, is the description of just being a shepherd. Those three words are used interchangeably for the office of pastor, elder, overseer. Okay? So pastor, elder, overseer, three words, same office, elder. There were only two offices in the New Testament, elder and, you know the other one? Deacon. Elders and deacons were the two official offices in the New Testament church. Now, there were some people in the New Testament who were pastors, but they didn't officially have the title or office of pastor. So just like today, when we have Pastor Mark or Pastor Jeremy, they're elder qualified but they don't have the official office in the church of being an elder. All right, now I'm Pastor Ryan, but I'm also an elder. So I have the role, I also have the office. All right, so there are certain people who have the qualifications, maybe even some responsibility as a pastor, but there's a limited small group of men who are officially having the, the position or the office of elder in the church. We're supposed to esteem this office highly. Now, just for clarity's sake, it says here the office of overseer. In the, in the Greek, it actually just reads if anyone aspires to oversight. All right? 
Now, the translators supplied the word office, which is not in the Greek, to help you understand that it doesn't just mean to oversee something um, or to be a general overseer. Based on the context, we know that they are talking about being an official overseer. So the ESV doesn't do this very often where they give you like a helper word that wasn't in the original Greek, but they do it here. I think it's right. They are talking about the office of overseer or elder. Now, some in Ephesus where the word aspire means to yearn or stretch or reach, some were strongly desiring to be an elder. Be careful what you wish for. It's a noble task. It's right. It's good. It's lofty. What exactly does an elder do? Well, let me share that with you. In our church, we say elders do basically three things, doctrine, discipline, and direction. You might want to write those down. What does an elder do? An elder handles the doctrine, guards the doctrine of the church uh, by teaching it, by teaching what is orthodox and right, but also by making sure small group curriculums um, and and, uh, anything that's being taught is orthodox and is biblical. The elders watch over the doctrine of the church. And in fact, if there's anybody who starts teaching or handing out books on teachings that we don't quite agree with, it's our job to go meet that person and to say, hey, this would represent the, the uh, spectrum of things that we do believe about that topic, you're here, okay? So you need to get within the brackets of what we would say is orthodox or you can't stay here. And uh, we've had some people in our church who, compared to what we would say is orthodox, they would be out here and they've just left because they disagree with us. All right, now I want to be careful. What I'm not saying is I'm not saying that the elders are going to police every little thing you believe about every little thing in the Bible. That's not our job. We're not going to be watchdogs over everything that you believe or think. Here's a picture of a watchdog. This is not what we're going to be in God's church, okay? We're not going to be police dogs trying to tell you exactly what you have to believe about the end times or the sovereignty of God or spiritual gifts or even gray areas. We're not going to sit you down and tell you what to think about clothing or movies or dancing or alcohol or Halloween. Sometimes God's people cry for that. You should really say something about Halloween. No, no, we're not. Because we're not going to be watchdogs trying to teach you every little thing about every little thing. That's not our job. It's not our job. In fact, our elders have different personal convictions and biblical convictions about many things. It's one of the strengths of the Harvest Fellowship is even different pastors believe different things about different areas, okay? We would call those, let's say those are like state borders. Like we're kind of in the same family, but we just believe different things about main areas. But then when you hit a national border, okay, you die in defense of your national borders, right? So if anyone comes against the uh, deity of Christ, or the inerrancy of Scripture, we're all going to war for that. All right, but your personal opinions about, you know, clothing or denim or dresses or skirts or, you know, pants or whatever, we're not going to police that. We have to understand that we're esteeming the office highly. Doctrine is the first thing that the elders look over. The next one is discipline. Because the elders are in charge of growing God's church, we have to make sure that nobody gets caught in a stronghold of sin. The purpose of church discipline is always restoration. The goal, the end goal is always restoration, not humiliation, restoration. So when we sit somebody down and we say, hey, listen, it's nice that you're singing in church, but you're shouting and throwing things in your home and your wife is asking us to help. Are you willing to take some steps to get your temper under control? No, that's just who I am. 
Uh, okay, well, you can't be that person and pretend to be a Christian Sunday morning. You need to make a choice. You either stay and sing to the Lord and put on that show and then go home and live like a Christian, or you can't come here anymore until you get that area under control. And there have been some people who have humbly received a strong word of exhortation from our elders. There have been other people who have frankly disregarded what the elders said, have been incredibly disgraceful toward our elders, have walked away from the church, and God's judgment will fall upon them. Okay, But the point is, the elders are supposed to notice when someone has a glaring problem in their life and they're refusing to deal with it, calling themselves a Christian, treating this like their church home, and it's the elder's job to sit down and say, that's not in line with God's plan for you. We need to help you through that. I mean, over five years, we've maybe had to do church discipline three or four or five times. It's not like we're like, who's next? Where's the next ten people that we're... It's not like we're looking for that. Okay? And I'd say, you know, there have been a couple of those cases that have turned out good, and those people have come back and really humbled themselves, and they're turning a corner. But sadly, several have not. That's what God wants elders to do. Uh, Oversee the church discipline and lead God's people to restoration. Uh, And then direction, doctrine, discipline, direction. Meaning, where's God leading us? Who should we hire next? Where should we move the church? Should we move the church? What should we purchase? Now, the elders don't sit on top of this, you know, high lofty mountain and then, boom, surprise everybody with the choice we made. We have tons of input, first from our other leaders, men and women who are serving and leading. Uh, We get tons of input from them. The elders share power with them, give authority to other people, so it's not the elders researching everything. We had a whole facility team made up of men and women who found this building and who designed the whole renovation. The elders weren't right there pouring over every little detail because they shared the the decision-making with others. Um, So our elders don't micromanage. They share their power, but ultimately all the decisions um, need to be elder-endorsed. And the elders are responsible to make sure the church is being properly led. That's what elders do. Doctrine, discipline, direction. Why should I esteem the office highly? Write this down. Because God designed the position. God designed the position. It wasn't thought up 300 years after Christ by a few church officials sitting around having coffee. In Acts 11.30, the first mention of of elders um, comes up. And in Acts 11.30, it says that there was a gift from the elders in Jerusalem sent to another church. This was just about about 12 years after Christ died. So listen... Within the first decade, elders were already there, okay? Elders were already there. So it was, elder leadership was around from the very beginning. We also know that in Acts 14.23, on the first missionary journey, Paul, after he went through all these cities, I mean, within like a month, he's heading back through these cities that heard the gospel for the first time, and the Bible says that they appointed elders in every town. First missionary journey, hi, I'm Paul, nice to meet you, here's the gospel. Within a month, hi, I'm back, let's get some elders installed. So it happened early in the church and on the missionary trips. In, and then later in Titus 1.5, Paul says to Titus, the young pastor, appoint el- the reason I left you in Crete was to appoint elders in every city. So what you have to understand is the elder idea was around from the beginning and it was universal in every city. All right? It was the way the early church was led. 1 Peter 5.2, we'll put it up on the screen, says this. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, get this, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. It's God's flock, 
and God wants elders to be over his flock. All right, so God the Father thought it up. This is a good time to actually bring up how authority actually works in our world. Um, check out Romans 13, 1 to 2. We'll put that up on the screen. It says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Those who resist will incur judgment. Another sermon for another day, what I do when I live under a corrupt or sinful regime that's hurting people. Another sermon for another day. But let me just say this. God wants government, and you are to submit yourself even to sinful, corrupt government to the best of your ability without violating your convictions. Government is good. All government is imperfect. God still wants you to submit to it. All right? And all government will be over, will be watched over by God, redeemed by God, judged by God eventually. But the point is, God thought up government in the church and in the world and in the home. Here's a picture of how God set government up and authority up in your life. It starts in the home. Uh, God wants the husband to be the spiritual leader in his house. He wants the wife to support that leadership and the children to fall under the leadership of the husband and the father. Well, what happens when that doesn't go so well? Okay, well, He also has every Christian under the authority of a local church. So you could go to an elder and say, hey, my husband is really struggling. I mean, he's getting us in a big mess financially. He won't listen to me anymore, and I think he needs some help. You're appealing to a higher authority, all right? And God has placed you under the authority of the local church. You don't get to decide if you step under it or if you step out from it. You are under the authority of the church because God thought it up. You are under the authority of your father or husband because God thought it up. All right, in the home and then in the church. And then, well, well what happens if the church is corrupt and, and I'm embezzling money? Well, then I get a knock on my door and I get to go off to jail because I'm under the authority of the government. And I can't just, well, God put me in charge. I'll do what I want. No, I'm under authority of the government too. And guess what? Everyone is under the authority of Christ. That's greatly reassuring because there is no such thing as perfect authority. Your husband will disappoint you. Your father will let you down. Your church leaders will make a wrong call. Your government officials, especially in this state, will be sinful. And it's sad when Christians pull out the, I'm not following them because they aren't perfect. Well, welcome to authority. But they are God's given government for right now. And he does expect you to obey and, and to put yourself under them right now. But listen, this is reassuring. No matter how bad you think you're husband or father or church leaders or government officials have gotten, you can never, ever fall outside of God's jurisdiction. Your job, oh, they're so corrupt and self-seeking. Good luck, God, getting anything done at my office. Listen, you are under the authority of Christ at your work, and so are they. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ, meaning it's never like you pray a prayer and God looks and checks and he's like, oh, I'm really sorry, but that, that's outside of my jurisdiction. That's not in my precinct. I don't have any power to change things there. That's never going to happen. You are always in a position. You are always standing under his authority. That's reassuring. You can trust his authority. You should submit to his authority. And in the church, the authority is God has set up elders. He designed the position. All right, next. Elevate the office highly. Why? Because God designed it also because the Spirit gives the gifting. Write that down. The Spirit gives the gifting. Acts 20, 28 says this. 
Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which, get this, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Who? The Holy Spirit. Um, elders coming to churches, being raised up in maturity and discipleship, and then being identified and installed by the local church is a spirit-directed process. God the Father is, through God the Spirit, giving elders to the church. And Christ is involved too. The next thing you can write down is this, because Jesus guides the process. God designed the position, the Spirit gives the gifting, and Jesus guides the process. In Ephesians 4, 11 to 12, it says this, He, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, here it comes, the shepherds and teachers. Jesus gives elders and teachers and shepherds to his church. All right? So it came from God, and it was around from the very beginning, and elder leadership was in every church. Okay? Now I have to pause here just to say there are other ways churches are led. In fact, maybe you came from a different type of church background. Maybe you're not, you didn't even know about elder leadership and you're not sure what you think about it. Um, you need to know that here at Harvest, it's not just our opinion that, that churches should be elder-led. It's our strong biblical conviction that that is the way that was laid out from the very beginning. All right? And so if you're a part of this church and you're planning to be a part of this church, you can't just be like, I'm okay with this elder thing, but I really think, you know, this is not going to change. And it's a strong biblical conviction that we have that this is the way the church should be led. Maybe you came from a background where a church was more congregationally led. Okay, I did too. Uh, Raise up your hand if you came from a church that voted a lot, was congregationally led, the congregation kind of approved everything like the budget and hires and building purchases. Okay, hold your hand up nice and and high. Okay, I hope you enjoy this because we never ever vote on anything in this church. (laughs) If you were really hoping to bring a printout of the latest Canon copier, and you wanted to get that thing voted into the office, I'm sorry, we just never vote. <laughs> I don't want you to be surprised. Um, I've been a part of congregational churches that have been very good. All right, I've been a part of congregational churches that have been very bad. I'm not saying that there's something inherently wrong with congregational government. If you were in a congregationally governed church, there was nothing but sin going on there. I'm not saying that. All right, uh, But what I am saying is this. Um, You can't make a strong biblical case that congregational government is the way the church should be governed. You can't. It's a weak case. It's it's a very American idea that everyone gets a vote. Okay, culturally, we're very in favor of that right now. It hasn't been the way throughout church history. And from the very beginning, there have been a smaller group of godly elders who are supposed to be leading the church. That is the biblical way. All right. So maybe if you were a part of a congregational church that did vote on some things, but there was a group of elders who did have the authority to make decisions, okay, that's kind of a hybrid, all right? But if you were a part of a church where the congregation made all the decisions and there weren't even elders around, I would say that that was very biblically deficient and simply not the way that the Bible lays out. Um, When it comes to other ways, sometimes there are churches that have like one pastor and a bunch of deacons, but the deacons almost serve in the role of elders. So they're kind of like delders. I was a part of a church like that too. It can work. I mean, I've seen godly deacons, but it's just biblically confusing. Where are the elders? Where are they? We're told to appoint elders in every city. Where are the elders in this church? It just doesn't make biblical sense to have only deacons and a pastor lead the church. Now, maybe you were a part of a church that is part of a denomination, and maybe the denomination had structures or layers of hierarchy over the local church leaders. What do we think about that? Okay, there's nothing sinful about denominations. Um, But what I would say is this, if 
the biblical plan laid out is that a group of local elders have the authority in the church, then the denomination should, should defer authority, primary authority, to the local church. So we would believe in the autonomy of the local church. Those local church elders should have the control over that church. And if there's other layers of bureaucracy or leadership, okay, they could influence, just like the church in Jerusalem sent out a letter to influence the decision-making of the early church on things like eating meat sacrificed to idols and observing the Sabbath and all that. Okay, you know what? Listen, we're going to send out a letter, and here's... But when you read that, what you find is they're trying to be as unintrusive as possible. They're trying to not overly burden the local church with their heavy hand. So what I would say is this. Denominations, there's nothing inherently sinful about a denomination. It's not like, oh, if you were a part of a denomination, nothing but sin was going on there. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, if the local elders have been somehow stripped of their responsibility and authority, or if their power has been diluted or corrupted or compromised, then the denomination has become something that is dragging that church from outside of biblical guidelines. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Some denominations do have that respect for and the deference for the local church elders. Some do not. And it's sad to see when a denomination is set up where power kind of flows to the top and money kind of flows to the top. Sometimes denominations can't, not always, everyone say not always, Sometimes denominations can diminish, complicate, corrupt the local church. And it's sad to see denominations sometimes having staff members who are doing little to nothing to advance the gospel. They exist just to exist as a denomination. They primarily get their income by closing down unhealthy churches. That doesn't sound very kingdom-minded. We should be planting churching churches. We should be growing churches. We should be strengthening churches. We shouldn't be figuring out how to keep this denomination on life support. That's not the biblical model. The local church held hostage by the denomination to keep the denomination alive is not good for the mission. Now you might be asking how is harvest structured? Well we're not a denomination but we're a part of about a by the end of the year there'll be 115 harvest churches somewhere in the world. So here's a timeline. You won't be able to read it because we're using our small screens today. I didn't think about that, but I'll read it for you. (laughs) Uh, In 2000, we planted our first church. Then we started planting churches all the way through 2003, 4, 5. We planted our first um, international church plant in Arad, Romania. Amen, Romania, in 2005. Uh, We also planted two churches in 06, 16 churches in 07, 27 churches in 2009. We're uh, on track to have 115 Harvest Bible chapels by the end of the year. And get this, just this year in Haiti, um, a church launched and 1,200 people came to the first service. 1,200 people. So listen, when I say church, I'm not talking about five people sitting around a card table. I mean a church that within a year or two has their local elders, is self-sustaining. That's what we're going for. I mean a church. Uh, So you're a part of a church planting organization, a church planting church. Listen, we can leave the Harvest Fellowship at any time. We have our own elders, make our own decisions. I don't get my sermons via email from the main church. I make them up. I get to decide them. Our budget is all ours. We don't send our budget up to the main harvest. We are an autonomous church. But we voluntarily partner with 115 other harvests because we have the same DNA, the same main convictions, the same heart to plant churches. You're a part of that. All right, so esteem the office highly. 
Why? Because God designed the position. The Spirit gives the gifting. Jesus guides the, pro- the process. All right, point two. Thankfully, there's only two points in this sermon. Appoint biblically qualified men. Write that down. Appoint biblically qualified men. It says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Above reproach means this. If I, if I look into Ken Henley's life and, and I try and get a handle, I try and get a grip on a disqualifying sin in his life, I can't. It, it keeps... I just can't grab onto anything in his life that, that disqualifies him from serving as an elder. All right? That's what it means to be above reproach. Billy Graham said at one point when it was pretty cool and hip in the news media to tear down evangelical pastors, he found out that reporters were looking through his trash to try and find anything on him that they could use to tarnish his reputation. They couldn't find anything. He's above reproach. That's what above reproach means. Um, now, sadly, our world will actually not try and look first for character in the people that the world elevates. But when it comes to biblically qualified men, the Bible says, look for character first. Don't tell me who he is, where he's been. Don't tell me what he can do. Don't tell me, you know, don't tell me what boards he's on. Look at the heart of the man and tell me if he is a biblically qualified man of character. In the world, that's not the way it works. Take, for example, Ray Rice. Here's Ray Rice. Hey, he won the Super Bowl. He can score touchdowns. He's an athletic freak. We love him to death. How's his personal life? I don't know. Who cares? Well, then word comes out that in Atlantic City, he got into some sort of a scuffle with his fiance. So, so there's some sort of report that, that he was seen like dragging his fiance out of an elevator and she was unconscious. Uh-oh, what do we do? Well, we'll give him a two-game suspension. And then what? Well, then another video came out, and it showed that he, that he was actually dragging her out. She was totally unconscious, and it looked pretty... Oh, what do we do now? Well, let's give him a six-game suspension. You know, then we'll get him back to score and touch that. Well, then another video comes out that actually shows him decking her, and she passes out in the elevator and hits her face on the way down. Now what do we do? Now what do we do? All right, fine, because everyone knows about it. He's off the team. We'll do the right thing because of the pressure. They weren't asking these questions at the beginning of the season. How's your personal life? How's your, you know, I do fantasy football each year, and you know, when you pick a team, you've got to look at their stats. You've got to look at their rushing yards. And Now next year, they should have a little stat line. How's his relationship with his wife? You know, how does he treat his children? Do they have some sort of a percentage on that? The NFL suddenly cares very much about that. Not, not before, though. Character doesn't seem to come first. What about in the political realm? Here's Governor Blago. Let's elect him. He's going to get some stuff done. You know, he's going to make some choices. And then he's, well, then he's going to sell power. <laughs> then the federal government is going to catch him trying to sell government seats at a price. And he's going to deny it. What do we do now? Uh, we throw him in jail. Character didn't really matter at the beginning when he was giving people seats. But then when the Fed stepped in, he goes to jail. Listen, in the church, character comes first. You can be a terrible husband and still be a great actor. Uh, you could be a horrible father and still be a great attorney. You could be a despicable neighbor and still be a successful doctor. You can't be any of these things and be a good elder. Character comes first. Write this down. Recognize, though, what I'm saying. Nobody deserves it. Recognize nobody deserves it. Okay? I'm not saying we have found a handful of men in our church who are more deserving of this office than others because they're good people. You know? They've got good hearts. Uh, Listen, listen, our elders are sinful 
men worthy of hell with black, dark hearts and checkered pasts, okay? But Jesus changed them. Jesus forgave them. Jesus gave them strength to become something they were not. And none of them deserves to be an elder. None of them, based on their little resume, based on the application they fill out, none of them deserves it. We are undeserving of the honor that God has given us. And, and let me just say that if you feel at any point, like, oh, I can't believe I've been overlooked for being a leader in this church. When's my time going to come to be a deacon? Or how come nobody's put me in charge of anything? Listen, if you feel like you deserve some honor in this church, you are dead wrong. You deserve nothing. None of us deserves anything. God is worthy of all glory. Jesus told the parable of the wedding banquet, and he said this, there was one man who showed up and took the highest seat. He promoted himself to the head table. Imagine if somebody did that at your wedding. Hi, I'm Phil. I'm going to sit right next to you and give the toast. No, you're not. How, how humiliating for him when the host had to come and tell him, uh, this isn't a banquet in your honor. You need to go sit at the kiddie table back by the bathrooms because there's no other seats left. God says that that will happen to anyone who tries to exalt himself. He'll be humiliated because he doesn't deserve any honor. This world is not a banquet in your honor. This world is a banquet in God's honor. Whatever skills or talents you have, whatever accolades come your way, should be directed toward the Father because this world is a banquet in his honor. Jesus actually says when you show up, you should take the lowest place. Why? Because that's all you deserve. You're here to love and serve God and to love and serve other people. When you understand that, you'll take the lowest place and you'll realize you don't deserve any honor in this life. When you're flat on your face in front of a holy God who somehow gave you a grace, a gift of eternal life, you realize you deserve nothing from Him but hell forever. That man, flat on his face, undeserving, will be lifted up. Because God wants a person who's going to give all glory to Him. And anyone who's saying what he deserves, thinks he, should, he was overlooked, you don't get it. The beginning of spiritual leadership is humility, knowing that you don't deserve it, and you never will. Recognize nobody deserves it. In fact, in 1 Timothy 1, the Apostle Paul says, Formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy. The grace of the Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He didn't deserve it. He knew he didn't deserve it. Display humility, but know that the men who are serving as elders here are undeserving, humble, godly men who don't deserve it. Write this down next. Avoid worldly criteria. If we're going to install elders, we need to appoint biblically qualified men, recognizing no one deserves it, but we have to avoid worldly criteria. What's some bad criteria to select leaders by? Well, he's been around a long time. He's got seniority. What is that? (laughs) He traveled around the sun enough times to become a leader. Yeah, that's junk. That's the way the world thinks. Seniority gets you nothing in God's church. Uh, it's a bad criteria. What about, what about what he's accomplished? He's got an MBA. He met the president. He's on several boards. He, blah, 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 blah. The Apostle Paul said, I consider all that I was before Christ rubbish. Throw it in the trash can. That's about how much it's worth in God's estimation. It makes you nothing. 
What about how much they've given? Always a big giver. Need to keep him happy. Need to feel like he's got some clout around here. Need him to be able to throw his weight around at a table. Yeah, sin, 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 sin. Favoritism is sin. That means nothing to God. What about the everyone gets a turn model? Well, you know, he hasn't had a turn yet. He's been here for five years, and I think we're going to rotate, so everybody gets a chance. Yeah, that's not the way it's supposed to work. This is all worldly criteria that's not going to be blessed by the Lord. How do we pick elders? Well, we start by looking around the church and finding men who are already serving and growing. Uh, so if, if you're not in a small group, you'll never be a leader here of anything because you're not really showing us that you want to grow yourself. If you're not working on a ministry team, you'll never lead anything here because you're not even showing us you can serve basically, let alone be entrusted with leadership. So we start by saying who's, leading, who's, who's in a small group, who's on a ministry team. And then, even beyond that, we more look, look to our small group leaders, men who have been uh, displayed the ability to take other people and, and help them to grow spiritually, or we find people who have taken on ministries that they lead. So they've, they've led something smaller before we put them um, up for becoming an elder. So we look at their track record. Um, when it comes to the application, then we say, hey, you know, we, we think we'd like to consider you to become an elder. There's no promises, but we would just like to go through a spirit-led process to find out if maybe you could be an elder. Then we have them fill out an application, uh, and then I have three meetings with, with the elder candidate. The first meeting is about doctrine, and we talk about every major area of doctrine, and I just find out exactly what they believe. And I tell them exactly what I believe. And, and then I'll push them a little bit. Like, well, what would you say if somebody said, you can't trust the Bible, it was written so long ago, what would you say? I just kind of push them, you know. Can you defend this? Push them a little bit. Show, show me, open your Bible. Show me in the Bible where it says that. You know, and I just kind of, you know, rough them up a little bit when it comes to the truth. Then after that, we spend a whole meeting talking about their walk with Christ. Tell me about the spiritual victories. Tell me where the Lord has led you. Have you been through trials? Tell me about your walk with Christ. Then we spend a whole day talking about their individual gifting and where they've served in the, in the church and what they've accomplished for the Lord and what their gifts are and their personality type. Um, and by the end of that, I have a really good handle of who the guy is. And either I get a green light, yellow light, or red light. And I'll go to the elders then, and I'll say, hey, I think this guy's a green light. Then they'll interview him too. One last check. And if even one elder has any sort of apprehension, we put the guy on hold. We say, yeah, we're not quite there yet. We're going to hold off. Um, I'll ask him sneaky questions. As we're talking, I'll just be like, have you ever cheated on your wife? When's the last time you looked at porn? Can I check your phone for your browsing history? Uh, Do you yell at your wife? How often do you yell at your wife? I'll just throw those questions in. Are you in a like, large amount of debt? We'll just push around and find out where the guy's at. Um, inevitably, we always find opportunities for continued redemption. We don't find perfect men. In fact, if anybody convinces us successfully that he's a perfect man, he fails because he's just shown us he's a good liar. <laughs> Bob there's perfect. Whoa, wow, he's disqualified. He's perfectly unacceptable. <laughs> um, we really try through the process and pick godly men. But we understand these men all have a past. Um, you know, if you look into the past of our elders, you'll find binge drinking, drug use, sexuality. Uh, you'll find greed. You'll find, you'll find all forms of sin, usually before Christ, sometimes even early in faith. Okay? But what you'll see now is we have, all of us, we have an extended season of spiritual victory in the major areas of discipleship. 
which means we get to set an example to other younger believers and say, listen, God can grow you in this. You can have victory not just for a year, not just for five, but for ten years over this thing. We give them hope. Okay? Not perfect men, godly men who are growing in the right direction. So we have to recognize nobody deserves it. We have to avoid worldly criteria. And then the last one is we have to select blameless men. Blameless men. All of the elders are in a great current condition spiritually. They've got an upward trajectory. I love what 1 Samuel 10, 26 says after King Saul was appointed. It says this, And valiant men whose hearts God had touched went with him. Listen, we need these men. Valiant men whose hearts God had touched went with him. And listen, small group leaders, listen. The next several weeks as we go through the criteria of what qualifies or disqualifies an elder, this is what you're supposed to be turning the men in your small group into. This is what you're supposed to become. This is what I'm supposed to become. Women, there are going to be concepts in here that you're supposed to get after. We're not just finding out, oh, all the things the elders are going to be graded on. This is exactly what we're going to be graded on. And if as a church, at the very center, we have godly, qualified men who are aspiring to meet these criteria, they will make men who are also running after those criteria. Then those men will go to their homes and they'll get their children, their wives to be growing spiritually, and the church will be strong because of it. But if at the very center of the church are weak, unqualified, ungodly men who are not setting a good example or challenging other men in the church to grow, the church will fall apart. If the men of the church rise up in strength, by God's Spirit, and get after these qualifications, our church won't be able to be stopped. We'll be indestructible. Families in this church will be strong. Husbands will be strong. Sin will be overcome. The enemy will be in full retreat. This is what we're all getting after together. And I want you to keep your church in prayer this week and in the next several weeks. Because listen, as we're growing, we need more small group leaders, more ministry leaders, more staff members, more elders, more deacons than ever before. And they're going to come from men who are willing to step up to become the men God wants them to be. That's going to be what paves the road uh, for the future of our church. This is what we're after and we're getting it after together. Let's pray right now that God blesses us with leaders and blesses our current leaders right now. Father in heaven, thank you that you have given such a high and lofty calling to your church. But not only are the elders supposed to live up to the standard, all of us are supposed to be living up to the standard. So, Father, just bless us, the men who lead in our homes, who are trying to raise up our children the right way and trying to love our wives to the best of our ability. Bless us, Lord, as we interact with a world that is filled with corrupt government, power, and authority. Help us not to lose heart, Lord, but help us just to hold up the arms of our leaders in this church, our small group leaders, our staff pastors, our elders and deacons. Help us to encourage these men to hold them up, O Lord, and to esteem them highly. And I pray that you would raise up from this room, more small group leaders and flock leaders and staff members and missionaries and church planners in the days ahead as only you can. By your spirit, make it happen. And help us as a church, Lord, to be united around the leaders you give us. We thank you for them. We pray a blessing upon them. And we ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.